Well, good morning. Good to see you all this morning. If you are sitting next to somebody who was at fair, maybe sharpen up the elbows this morning, get ready to give them a couple lovely jabs, um, especially next to Dale Helwig. Um, no, just actually, I'm not kidding. Do it. If you see them dazing off, backhands work, you know, wet willies, whatever you want to do. Anyways, uh, let's pray before we go anywhere else. So Father God, we just come before you and we're so grateful, God, just for who you are. God, we're grateful that we can gather together this morning. And so God, I just ask that you just open our hearts to your message. God, help the message that is about to be spoken to be your message. Help those who hear hold fast to it. And God, may those who have not given their life to you see who you are and surrender their hearts to you and be saved. God, help us hear nothing but Jesus crucified. Help the message be just your power revealed of who you are. And God, help us to just open our hearts to you. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray this, amen. So have you ever looked at something and you thought, man, I really want that. I've seen concepts for like the new 2024 Toyota 4Runner, and they're talking about bringing back like the convertible back that the Gen 1 had. And whenever I see images of that, it's like, oh, that's going to be my next vehicle. And then I see the price tag on it, and it's like, <laughs> maybe next lifetime. When I'm in heaven, that's what I'll get to drive. But Teddy Roosevelt, he made the comment one time. He said that comparison is the thief of joy. And then I heard it this week from a friend of mine, and we were talking about some stuff, and I was like, you know what they say, the grass is always greener on the other side. And he said, that's actually where the sewage system is. And it was like, huh, that makes so much sense. That usually when we look at other people's lives or we look at something and we're like, man, if I could just have that, then I would be happy. If I could live their life, if I could have their stuff, what, whatever it is, we think that is going to be the thing that will ultimately satisfy us. And that's what Ecclesiastes is talking about. Where Solomon is like, I'm looking for the purpose of life. I'm looking for that thing that is ultimately going to fill me and it never does. And that's kind of what we're going to see in our passage this morning. Because what Paul tells us as he's writing to Timothy, he kind of gives us, this is where you're going to find the ultimate joy in life. And it's in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, where he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. That when you have God and you can just find contentment and you have him over all this other stuff, you're going to have great gain. That Jesus tells us that it is better to forfeit the entire world and save your soul than to receive everything in the world and forfeit your soul. I've had the opportunity of going overseas or going over a, like the Caribbean Sea, I guess, not CCs. Anyways, that's not the point. Um, going over to Haiti, we flew over water. And while I'm over there, it is like the poorest country almost in the world where they have nothing. And yet the believers over there seem to be some of the most joy-filled people because they found truth in this, that godliness with contentment is great gain. But what we're gonna see this morning is what happens when you step outside of that kind of, 
because we're talking about the nation of Israel and what we've been seeing up to this point, we're gonna be in the book of First and Second Samuel. And what we've seen up to this point is that God has been guiding Israel, that God guided Abraham to the promised land. God guided the Israelites out of exile in the book of Exodus. God guided them through the wilderness in the book of Numbers. God guided them how to be a nation in Leviticus in Deuteronomy. And then we looked at Joshua, how God guided them into the promised land. He fought on their behalf. He won victories for them, that they have been having God as their leader. And now we get to Samuel where we read, honestly, to me, some heartbreaking words in 1 Samuel chapter 8, where in verse 5, they're talking to Samuel the prophet, and they say, Behold, you, and your, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all nations. That here they've had God guide them and lead them, and they're like, you know what? We look at all these other nations, nations that we just beat in battle, that we didn't even have to go to war against hardly. We walked around Jericho seven times, screamed, and it came down, and then we were able to take it. God guided us in that, but we don't want God anymore. We want to be like every other nation. When you understand that backdrop there, Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 5 resonates to me, where God is speaking to the nation of Israel and he says, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and they themselves became worthless? That God has done nothing but show his love to the people of Israel and they have rejected him and now they're rejecting him as their leader and they're saying we want to be like every other nation that there is. And that's the backdrop to First and Second Samuel that we're going to be talking about. It's a lot to cover this morning, so we're going to jump into it. If you're a note taker, get ready. Here we go. The name? is First and Second Samuel. We're gonna be talking about two books here and they are taken from the prophet Samuel who really wasn't even alive through the second half of First Samuel, but his ministry lasted and his leadership affected throughout the rest of the book. And he's actually credited with writing part of it. And that's kind of the next one. We're skipping a parallel book. But the author, we don't know who it is, but according to 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 29, it says that these are the chronicles of Samuel the seer, Nathan the prophet, and Gad the seer. And so they assume that all three of those, Samuel, Nathan, and Gad, contributed to writing these and that eventually it was just all brought together under one person that wrote it all out, but it's based on their chronicles. And the parallel book is First Chronicles. When you read the accounts of First Samuel and Second Samuel, First Chronicles is a parallel of that. It kind of reads along the same line. The first nine chapters of First Chronicles is the genealogies of this guy begat that guy who begat that guy, and it works its way through there. And then you start reading a lot of the same accounts. The dates of the events that occur in First and Second Samuel is about 1120 to 971 BC. It spans about 150 years. First Samuel covers 110 years, 
And it is from the birth of Samuel from about 1120 BC, and it goes all the way through the reign of Saul, who ended up dying in 1010 BC. So you got about 121 or 110 years there. And then 2 Samuel focuses in on a smaller portion, about 40 years, because it is the reign of David who reigned for seven years in a town called Hebron over the Judah, and then he reigned for 33 years over a united kingdom of Israel. So he had a reign of 40 years. The audience, well, it's a historical account to the people of Israel, but it has theological lessons for us today. That as all of the Old Testament does, it is written to specific people, but it is still important for us here today. First Chronicles is the same thing, but it's actually written post-exile. So if you're familiar with your Jewish history, and we'll get to it as we get into those, Israel rejects God, they keep going against God, and so God says, I'm going to cast you into exile, the Babylonian exile, and then after they get to come back, Chronicles is written to those people who returned from the exile. The main figures that you're going to see are first off, you have Samuel, who is the last judge of Israel, because right before this, we studied the judges, who they were the military and the religious and the political leaders at that time. So Samuel is the last one. And then they come to Samuel and they say, we don't want to be judged. We want a king to lead us. And so then you have Saul, who is the first king of Israel. And then you have David, the most famous and the best king of Israel, who is also called a man after God's own heart. We actually do see one covenant in the book of Samuel. It's in 2 Samuel, because really it used to be just one book called Samuel, but they broke it down to be 1 Samuel and then 2 Samuel. But in 2 Samuel, you have a covenant that God makes with David, where David is wanting to build the temple for God, and God says, I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make for you a great name. This is God speaking. Like the name of the great ones of the earth, I will appoint a place for my people and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So you have there the covenant that God is making with David, because David says, I want to build you a house, and God says, Heavens are my throne and the earth is my footstool. Who are you to make me a house? Instead, I'm going to make this covenant with you that your kingdom will last forever. And what we see through that is Jesus being the seed of that covenant. 
the survey of the book, we're going to kind of skip the main events of the book, but the survey of the book is that 1 Samuel is a period of transition. You go from the judges to the kingship, you go from Eli to Samuel, you go from Saul to eventually David taking over. There's a lot of transitions happening in there. And then 2 Samuel is pretty much the entire reign of David. Again, in prophecies, we saw that messianic prophecy in the covenant that God made with David. And there were three things promised to David that we see in Luke chapter 1 promised to Jesus or spoken about Jesus. Where it says, he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord is going to give to him a throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, so it will last forever. In his kingdom, there will be no end. So it's an eternal kingdom, it's a throne, and then he's also given a seed. And that's the prophecy that is in 2 Samuel 7, 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's the messianic prophecy talking about Jesus where we see him coming in and fulfilling that with or from the lineage of David. There are three typologies that we see. Remember, a typology is reading an Old Testament account of who Jesus is. It's either a person, a rule, something that represents Jesus in the Old Testament. The three that we have is first off Samuel. As he fulfills that role of prophet, priest, and judge, the same thing Jesus did. We see it in David, where Jesus is called the son of David, where they're both born in Bethlehem. They're both shepherds. They're both kings of Israel, and they both face rejection. And in Romans chapter 1, it says concerning his son being Jesus, who is descended from David according to the flesh. And then Revelation 22, it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. So we see Jesus coming from David. And then the last one, and this is where we're going to land this morning, is in the kingship. As we see in Samuel, the kingship of Israel coming into their role, that is what was ultimately supposed to be fulfilled by Jesus. Because Israel had that theocracy, that rule by God, where God was guiding them and leading them, and they said, we don't want to be led by God. Make us like every other nation. And so they ended up becoming a monarchy. They wanted to be ruled by man. And this is also something, honestly, that we see in so many people's lives today. Where it's like, you know what, God, I know that you died, you sent Jesus to die for my sins, but I don't want you to rule me. I want to rule my own life. I want to be king of my life. I want to call the shots. I want to be the one that makes all the decision. You just be, uh, it's the analogy that has been stuck in my head since a couple weeks ago. You be that lawyer that I have on retainer. And when everything goes bad, that's when I'll come to you. But otherwise, let me rule my own life. Whereas Jesus, he's king. Whether we really make him king or not. There, there was this movement that happened a couple years ago, and it was a political statement that I heard a lot. Might have even been guilty of saying it occasionally. Not my president. 
I don't care who's in the office. I didn't vote for them, so I'm not going to listen to what they have to say. Seems like there are a lot of even Christians who are wanting to make that statement about Jesus. Well, he's not my king. I mean, yeah, he gave me salvation and he came, but Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is my best friend. Jesus is that person that I'll talk to and we'll negotiate and we'll disagree and we'll decide to go our own ways, but we'll still be kosher with each other. And it's like, no, Jesus, he's king and he deserves to be king. But the reality is whether you make him king or not does not decide if he's king or not. It's not like he's up there like majority rule. Okay, I guess I'm king. Enough people voted me in. He is king no matter what. Revelation chapter 19 verse 16 tells us that when he comes back and he's leading that army, he has on his thigh these words, king of kings and lord of lords. He's going to rightfully claim his place. So you can put him where he rightfully belongs in your life and submit to him, or you can reject him, go against him, and someday he's returning and you're gonna find out exactly who he is. You see, Jesus didn't just come to save you from hell, which is how a lot of cultural Christians are wanting to live their life. He came to rule your life. He came to be king over you. He came to set you free so that you can surrender to him. He came to make you a citizen of his kingdom. Those are the first words that Jesus came and proclaimed when he started preaching. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know who the king is? It's not you. It's not me. It's not the president of our country. It's not even if they do a one world government and they make somebody say, you are ruler of all the world. That's still not who the king is. It is Jesus. He is the king of kings and Lord of lords. And he came to rule over us as a good king, especially as Americans. It seems like we hate that word authority. We have authority issues. We don't want to submit to people. We are red-blooded, free citizens of America. But what Paul tells us in Romans is actually you're still a slave to something. No matter what, you will always be ruled by something. What, what uh, Wayne told us, read for us in Ephesians, what is said right before that is, you are dead in your trespasses. You were carrying out the desires of your mind and your body. To say I'm free is a lie because there are so many times that I want to claim freedom of my own life and my mind is controlling where I'm going. And it is a dark path. There are so many times that I claim to be free and then well, this is a real shallow analogy, but those donuts are calling my name. And it's like, don't do it. And then I find myself at the donut shop, not just getting a long john, but I'm filling it with angel cream filling and I'm getting three of them. And I'm like, this is the worst decision ever, but I'm eating all three of them. Now that's a really shallow analogy, but it has a deeper connotation. There are times where I say, don't look at those images and I'm fighting it. But next thing I know, my phone is pulled out and I'm looking and I'm scrolling and I'm gradually finding my way. And I know where this is going to lead. And it's like, oh, but it'll satisfy me only for a second. 
Or maybe if I go after that next promotion, so I'm going to surrender everything else and I'm going to be a slave to my job so that I can get that promotion. Because once I get the promotion, I'll be happy. But with the promotion comes more requirements and more work and less time with the family. And so then you're no longer able to feed into your family the way you're supposed to. And next thing you know, you're cohabitating or whatever it is. Whatever your vice is that you know there's that thing that tugs and you feel it not just in your heart, but it is a physical feeling of when I fight it, my body aches and I want to give in to it. We are slaves to that. And what Jesus tells us is, I came to set you free from that so you can live for me because when you live for me, as Wayne said, you'll find rest. Because he goes on to say, my burden is light and my yoke is easy. That when you come to me, you will be revived and you will find life and life abundant. But you have to submit to me. You have to live according to what my word tells you. Because Jesus came to be king of our lives. Have you made him king of your life? Or is he just that guy that died on a cross so that you could be set free and continue to live in your sin? You see, in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, Jesus is giving his sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And something that he repeats over and over in there is, you have heard that it was said. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But what he always does is he flips it around real quick and he says, but I say to you, or but I tell you the truth, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek as well. If somebody asks for your cloak, give them your tunic. If somebody says, walk with me a mile, go with them too. He's saying, I am the one that has authority to say these things. And then at the very end of it, Jesus kind of paints this picture of, are you going to listen to him? Are you going to obey him? Or are you going to be like the people in these stories or in these uh, statements that Jesus makes where he says, these are sobering words. Matthew chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Isn't that scary? That there are going to be people on that day who say, Lord, Lord, and he's going to be like, you're not coming in. He goes on to say, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? Man, that stuff sounds powerful. And Jesus goes on to say, I'm going to declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That they're going to come and be like, Jesus, did we not attend services regularly in your name? Did we not give 30% of our income in your name? Did we not open doors in your name? Did we not do all these religious things in your name? And he's going to be like, depart from me. I never knew you. And he goes on to explain in an analogy what the difference is going to be. He says about the wise man and the foolish man, he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, they will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. 
The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it, was, it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall. You see, there's a difference between those two. Notice what that difference is. The wise man heard the words. The foolish man heard the words. They both sat in the same service, heard what God was calling them to do, said that's a good message, only one of them obeyed. It says the wise man, when he heard the words and obeyed them, that is like the man who built his house on the rock. The foolish man heard the words, but did not do what Jesus said. And he built his house on the sands. The floods came, one stood, one got wiped out. It's not just about hearing it's about obeying what God is calling you to do. It's about surrendering your life over to him. Because notice what Jesus' words were that were at the end of him saying, I never knew you. He says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That these people are like, Jesus, we were in church regularly. Jesus, we gave up a portion of our income, but... When they were not doing religious services, they were not living for God. They were not being obedient to him. They were one person on Sunday, and they were somebody else throughout the week. They were not living a hidden life for Christ. And what I mean by that is the hidden things, they were not being obedient to God in. It's like I'm sitting here, and I, it's, a, it's a sin that won't affect anybody, so I can go ahead and keep on doing it. They are practicing lawlessness. And 1 John actually tells us that this is how you are, know you are children of God. If you obey his commandments, anyone who has been born of God does not make a practice of sinning. Now, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will cleanse us of all unrighteousness that we surrender over to him. We repent and turn from that. But Jesus did not come to die so that we can keep on living in our sin. Jesus came to die so that we will die to our sin and be raised to life with him and walk in that newness of life and make him king of our lives. Because you can either surrender to him now or there's going to come a day where it's going to be too late and you're going to drop to your knee because you're in the presence of him. But you're also going to realize, oh, no, it's going to be the ultimate oh, no moment of I did not make you king of my life. So here's a question. It's I think I think it's a real simple test to know, is Jesus truly king of my life? Put yourself in a scenario where your body is saying one thing and Jesus is saying another. Who are you listening to? Put yourself in a scenario where you could totally get away with this. Nobody would know. And yeah, it's not going with what God says. You know it's going to oppose God's word, but you can get away with it. Nobody will be the wiser. Who are you listening to? 
Are you cutting corners and going this way? And you're like, you know what? Nobody's going to know. I can get ahead. Or are you saying, I'm living not for this world, but I'm living for the eternal kingdom, and I'm going to obey my king. I'm going to live for him. When your desires and the Bible conflict with each other, who do you obey? The thing that you obey is the thing that you are making king of your life. Now, I'm not saying that it's going to come free, like easy peasy, lemon squeezy kind of thing, where it's just like, oh, you know what? My body really wants this. Oh, Jesus is my king. Not going to walk in that. I'm going after Jesus. There's that struggle. But we fight and we fight and we fight. And Jesus gives us the strength to keep on fighting. But what we do is we realize that's the Holy Spirit working in you. That the things I used to do, I don't like doing anymore because I've died to that. And I don't want to walk in death. It's putrid. It's nasty. Instead, what I do is I surrender to Jesus. And what I do is I praise God for grace when I do, in a moment of weakness, make myself king. And I say, Jesus, get off the throne. I'm taken back. And then what I do is I repent, I confess, I repent, and I give Jesus back the throne of my life, and I live for him. And he is a good king who gives us mercy and grace and forgiveness. But we do not practice lawlessness. You see, here's the thing. When you truly surrender to Jesus, that's going to be the only time you find true freedom. Is when you give everything over to him. I heard a story one time, it's a, it's a children's book, but it's about this horse, and he was running free, and he, he wasn't pinned up, he was able to run wherever he wanted, and every night he had to try and find food, and he had to go somewhere, and finally this guy came up to him, and he tried to rein him in, and the horse fought, he was like, no, I'm a free horse, I don't want to be corralled. So he went out, and then there was the storm that was coming, and he realized, wait a minute, I am in the storm. And, and I'm, I'm finning for myself, but there's nowhere to go. And finally, he surrendered to his master. And he found fresh food. He found shelter. He found pastures to go roam and run. It was when he was able to truly surrender. That's when he found true joy and ultimate freedom in his life. You see, Israel had God ruling over them. He had God, they had God guiding them. They had God teaching them, God in their presence. And they said, we don't want that. We want to be like everybody else. Is that what you're doing with your life? Now notice 1 Samuel chapter 8 shows us, or eight, yeah, 1 Samuel chapter 8 shows us what they wanted a king to do. Starting in verse 19, it says, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no. We don't want God. There shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations in that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They wanted two things from this king. They wanted a judge, somebody to lead them, guide them, make decisions for them, and they wanted someone to fight their battles for them. They ended up getting what they desired. They got their desires because later on, the king, Saul, is given over to them, and he fails 
to do these things. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, the Philistines and the Israelites, they're lined up to battle, and they're getting ready to go to war, and the Philistine champion, Goliath, he comes out, and what a champion did is it's like, you know what, let's not shed all this blood, let's not lose our army, you lose your army, you send out your best fighter, we'll send out our best fighter, they'll fight, whoever wins, that's who wins the war. Goliath, standing nine feet, six inches tall, massive spear, massive sword, massive shield, he's out there, and he is taunting them, and in 1 Samuel 17, he says, why have you come out to draw up for a battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves. Choose your champion and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, he will be your servant. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be servants to us. And so the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Notice these next words. When Saul... And all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Here they are. Please give us a king so that we can be like every other nation and he'll go out to fight for us. And you have this moment where Goliath is like, who are you going to send? It should have been Saul. But instead, he is scared. Even the next king, the king after God's own heart, David, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, we are told in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, when David is supposed to be fighting on their behalf, David, he sent Joab, his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites, and they besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And this is the story where David goes up on his rooftop. He sees Bathsheba bathing. He, loved, he likes what he sees. He calls her over. He gets her pregnant. And man, that is the beginning of the downfall of his leadership. But he's supposed to be fighting for them. And he says, no, I'm going to remain back. I'm going to make bad decisions. But look at what happened right before Israel says, we want a king. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 7, the Philistines, they hear the people of Israel gathered at Mizpah. The lords of the Philistines, they went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid. Kind of like with Saul and Goliath, they're afraid. So the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb. He offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, in that moment, the Philistines drew near to attack to Israel. The Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines, threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. I mean, think about witnessing that, seeing that happen, and then saying, eh, not good enough for us. We want to be like every other nation. Is that not how we are to God? When we see, all right, I'm walking in God's way. I understand his way is good, pleasing, and right. I'm going to live for him. And then I see this, and it's like, uh, you know what? This, this joy that I'm feeling, I don't like it. I'm going to go after the desires of the world. I'm going to forsake what Jesus tells me, and I'm going to go after and be a slave to myself. And I'm going to live 
for my body. They had God leading them and fighting them, and they rejected him. Are you doing that today? And maybe it's not in all areas of your life. That's not how you would say everything in your life is that way. But there are those areas where you say, God, I know your word says this, but I refuse to obey. I refuse to submit to you. Don't be like Israel. Don't reject God. Instead, surrender everything over to him. And you'll find a life of joy. Regardless of your circumstances, you'll find a life of purpose and love and guidance. Don't be like Israel. Don't claim that Jesus is king of your life, yet still sit on your own throne. Instead, surrender everything over to him. And what Paul says is true. Godliness with contentment is great gain. You know what happens when you make God your king, your ruler? That man after God's own heart, David, in probably the most famous psalm, tells us this is what God does when you make him king of your life. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Just real quick, we're gonna pause on that. Imagine that. Your enemies gathering around you and what do they see you doing? Sitting at a table, feasting. Like, I'm not scared of you because I know that even through the valley in the shadow of death, God is with me. He is my king. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father God, Thank you that you are God and that you are good. But God, there are still so many areas, even in my own life, that I struggle to surrender over to you. And God, I know I'm not the only one here. Be it the future, be it current situations, whatever it is, God, work in our hearts so that we can surrender everything to you and live for you in all things. God, I pray for those who are king of their own life and they just see their kingdom crumbling under them as they're the foolish man who hears these words, but God, they refuse to obey them. Work in their hearts so that they may see who you are and just give it all over to you. So God, you're, you're the God at work here. I just pray that you help us open our hearts to you. So that as we get ready to sing this closing song of invitation that we focus on you and respond however it is that you're calling us to so that we can just elevate you. As John says, you must increase and we must decrease. Help us do that, God. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen.